This is not the media. This is hell. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell today on This is Hell. We are continuing our ongoing series of interviews with correspondents, contributors, past guests, and maybe some people who have never been on our show before to find out what the coronavirus pandemic is like, where they are, what's happening in their community, and within their own lives during this age of the virus. We started this segment last month when we spoke with our man in San Juan, Dave Buchan, who told us how Puerto Rico is coping with the pandemic after being hit by an earthquake and still recovering from hurricanes that made landfall way back in 2018. Then we talked to our correspondent in Budapest, Todd Williams, who described a Hungary still under the authoritarian rule of Prime Minister Viktor Orban and how his power has expanded during the virus. But don't forget, Orban's unchallenged power was growing by leaps and bounds long before the virus. The next week, we talk to the award-winning video game designer of Thumper, the video game Thumper, Mark Flurry, who has been giving us some morning calm from Seoul, South Korea since sometime in the 2010s. Mark told us why South Korea responded far better than the United States and why he was so concerned for the people back here in the States because he doesn't have much faith in the self-discipline of our society here in the U.S. And last week, we went down to Brazil to hear from our correspondent in Sao Paulo, editor and correspondent Brian Mir, who works over at Telesur and Brazil Wire. Brian told us how the government of Jair Bolsonaro has reacted to the crisis, and if you guessed that a far-right leader would deny the actual existence of the virus then deny its lethality, you are correct. This week we are off to Taiwan, which shines like a beacon of democracy with a success in fighting COVID-19 compared to their communist neighbor in mainland China. This proves once once again that democracy triumphs over communism. So what explains why socialist Vietnam is having such great success in fighting the virus too? And if democracies do so well in a pandemic, then why does the response by the U.S. and the U.K. suck so bad? And all that aside, what's with all the military posturing going on in the strategic confrontation between the Chinese and the U.S. military? I mean, seriously, can this global pandemic lead to World War III as two of the most powerful nations in the world try to save face for bungling the coronavirus so badly? The Trump campaign is pushing the anti-China message pretty hard lately. Will they get us to the brink of war to rally their base? We'll find out what is happening in Taiwan under the virus in a few when we have the return of journalist Brian Hugh, who is a writer on social movements and youth culture in Asia and a founding editor at Taiwan-based New Bloom magazine. You can find out more about New Bloom at newbloommag.net, where you can find Brian's writing. You can follow Brian on Twitter at Brian Hugh, that's H-I-O-E. And Brian now has a portfolio website of all of his past writing at brianhugh.info. This will be Brian's fourth appearance here on This Is Hell, dating back to 2015. You can hear all of our conversations with Brian at our website, thisishell.com. And of course, we'll wrap up this week as we do most weeks with a moment of truth from contributor Jeff Dorchin. This week, Jeff shares part three of The Good Doctor, the four-part fictional expose of a man who betrayed his calling 
in exchange for fame and fortune. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. I was just about to ask you what you're going to be doing this weekend, but Alex, I got another question that just popped into my head. Any word from WNUR on if we're ever going to be aired there or anything is ever going to be aired there, again, other than some computer-generated music? There is a folder you can put things in. So what do you do? Oh, I don't know. There's just a folder you can put things in. I don't know if it uh, ends up on the radio. Uh, And you don't know what time it would be on on the radio? No. So are you putting things in this folder to see what happens? Yes, I've been putting things in the folder and... uh, (laughs) hearing the same music playing during our airtime on the radio every time. So we have no idea when it's airing. No. Or if it is. There's a folder. There is a folder, though. So there is a folder. So what are your plans for the weekend, anyway? Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. Uh, yeah. More Coke Zero. Yeah, I, uh, I'm cracking open a can of Coke Zero because uh, my green card arrived in the mail today. Holy just crap. under the wire. Dude, holy Woo. cow. Yes. Uh, wow, congratulations. Breathe out a sigh of relief on that one. That was cutting it short. I wow. applied for it uh, 18 months ago. Wow. And like the day I could renew... Uh, then, yeah, I was uh, very surprised to see that showing up in the mail today. So now, as long as there aren't any questions on the citizenship application about schmopenly schmashmording schmommianism, uh, then I should probably be able to be here and uh, die with my family in the next 10 years. So, uh, so uh, if you had not got your green card and they were like, you got to go back to where you came from, where do you go? Where would they send you? A place worse than here, Australia. I know, that's what I was thinking. That's where you'd end up going. And they don't want you. Uh, yeah, probably not. <laughs> this week's question from Al is, what should Bernie Sanders do with all that money people donated to his campaign? What should Bernie do with all that money? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins 10 This Is Hell advertising stickers so you too can subvert outdoor advertising with the words This Is Hell. As we are all living in hell right now, what better time to remind others that, yes, this is hell. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it to us at thisishellradio. You can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. I forwarded to you somebody's answer that only went to me today, Alex, so I hope you got that. Uh, alex, do you have any more of our listeners' answers to this week's question from hell? Oh, yeah. What should Bernie do with all that money people gave him? What should Bernie do with all that money people gave him? Boomer says, give it to Joe. Complete the screwing. <laughs> Stereo Match says, buy This Is Hell merch. All right. Ratif says, throw one last rager before summer's over and we all go on to different colleges. <laughs> Very one good. one last rager. Uh, Vaughn says, finance an opposition to the DCCC that primaries based on stringent set of position qualifiers. That's a little too practical. Mike the Giga Grouch says... Cover the costs of his bro's psychiatric counseling. Probably has enough money to do that, actually. Yeah. RN's strike for PPE says set up an independent political organization that's democratically run, unlike our revolution and a media network. Okay. Red Hero says, buy me one of those sweet jackets he's wearing. <laughs> in, that, in that video where he asks people for a... Uh, he actually is wearing a really sweet jacket. Uh, some pulp says, give it back. Uh, Exul- impossible. <laughs> Exula Roy says, build guillotines. Jen right. C says, listen to his, he needs to listen to his base, not give it to Joe Biden type Dems, but help build the movement for the things we need like Medicare for all. Gail N says, Jill Stein's 2020 recount project. <laughs> uh, Paul says, buy weapons for the Ben and Jerry's Liberation Army. Spokane Eco-Socialist says, Howie Hawkins 2020. Oh my God. Discount G says, arm the kids in cages. Sleepy F says, hookers are, 
sorry, cocaine and hookers mm-hmm. go out with a bang. Mm-hmm. Uh, Botany 5000 says, <laughs> run for president. Botany 5000. Uh, you know, yeah, you know him. Uh, <laughs> Rock Taster says, buy a modest bumper sticker and give, and give the remainder back. And the bumper sticker says, I'm retired, go around me. Red State Red says, I'm sure a This Is Hell tote bag would be useful for toting water for the oligarchs in the Democratic primary. Actually, they're not. I don't think they would hold the water very well. Finally, David P. says, ice cream. (laughs) I like that. All right. Ice cream. I got to write that one down. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. Again, email us your answer to chuck at thisishell.com, alex at thisishell.com. Post it at our Facebook page. Tweet it to us. This is hell, the best radio show your best friend has never heard. And don't you think it's time you told them about it? We want to thank Jay for going to our Facebook page and rating us five out of five stars, like nearly 200 other visitors have. Jay says this is hell is principled hard left radio they stick to their guns principled hard left radio they stick to their guns jay thanks for saying we are principled and as soon as jay tells us what our principles are because we have no freaking idea what they are we'll be sharing our principles with everyone i'm looking forward to learning what our principles are and if you have any idea please email what you think our principles are to Chuck at thisishell.com or Alex at thisishell.com. As far as sticking to our guns, Jay, thanks because I know you meant to stand up for your beliefs no matter what, or to hold onto your convictions, in this case our principles, if others agree with them or not. And thanks, Jay, for saying so because I learned the origins of the phrase stick to your guns. It's an order directed at sailors to take their stations at guns on naval vessels and to remain at their posts even when the ship fell under enemy fire, which is an act of bravery or stupidity. So Jay's comment is spot freaking on because I'm never sure if what we're doing on this dumb show is brave or just stupid. You can rate This Is Hell at our Facebook page, and if you leave a comment like Jay did, we will read it on air. We got an email at chuckatthisishell.com from Daniel, who has a guest suggestion. Andre Assier, author of Pandemic and Class Relations, The Bourgeoisie Warns of Uprisings and Evolutions, Revolutions, which was at leftvoice.org. Love the show. Thanks, Daniel. This article looks fantastic. I started reading it this morning because we just got this email late last night. The subheadline for Andre's article is the bourgeoisie is being warned. The most misleading cliche about the coronavirus is that it treats us all the same. It doesn't, neither medically nor economically, socially or psychologically in particular. COVID-19 exacerbates pre-existing conditions of inequality wherever it arrives. Before long, this will cause social turmoil up to and including uprisings and revolutions. Again, the article, if you're interested, is at leftvoice.org. It's called Pandemic and Class Relations. It's by Andre Assier, who is a political scientist from Sao Paulo and an editor at Left Voice's Brazilian sister site, Esquerda Diario. So Alex looked into it today. I really wanted to have Andre on the show because this is a great guest suggestion from Daniel, and the article looks fantastic. Unfortunately, Alex discovered that it had been translated and the author does not speak English. So you're going to have to read it yourself. Again, that's at leftvoice.org. Pandemic and Class Relations by Andre Acier, A-C-I-E-R. Ronaldo, who does Rotten History for us, wasn't too happy about me not liking Rod Stewart. 
Look, all I'm saying is that the show, podcast, TV show, whatever that freaking thing is, Young Turks, is poorly titled when that name is the name of the group who started the Armenian Genocide and claiming that the show is actually named for a Rod Stewart song might be worse than being named for people who started a genocide. Ronaldo writes, hey, I, I wasn't too cool. It, or, I wasn't too cool to like Rod Stewart when he was in the Jeff Beck group or when he was the lead singer of Faces. His first two or three solo albums were also pretty good. But yeah, he seriously nosedived after that, which is what makes him especially repugnant. He could have continued making great music if he cared. He had the talent and the ability, but he didn't give a crap. Now that's music history analysis. Yeah, friends of mine have always said Rod Stewart was great with Jeff Beck and the faces. But by the time I listened to Rod Stewart, Rod Stewart had already ruined Rod Stewart for me. So let us never speak of Rod Stewart again, because really, who gives a damn about Rod Stewart other than the hosts of a show named for an Armenian genocide who are trying to cover for the fact by saying it's actually named after a Rod Stewart song? John, who has joined us many times for This Is Hell Office Hours, for our annual listener appreciation party, for all sorts of events that we've had here, the holiday office party. John writes, I just donated again to the Carrie's Lounge fundraiser, and I thought I would shoot you a quick email to see how things are going, hopefully well enough. You can donate. You can donate. I'm telling everybody right now, aside from John. He already has done this, but everybody can donate to the fundraiser for the staff at Carrie's Lounge, who are currently out of work, by going to GoFundMe.com and searching on Carrie's Lounge. That's C-A-R-Y-S Lounge. There was a national news story, actually, the other night because some rich dude in California raised $2,000 for his restaurant's waitstaff, who he had laid off. A national news story. So far, Pete, the owner of Carrie's, has raised not $2,000, but nearly $7,500. But Pete isn't rich, doesn't live in Cali, and the only person he knows in the media is me. And this is not the media. So you see where this is going. John continues, I try to catch your broadcast during the week when I can. I just wanted to say that your tale of your trip on Amtrak brought back memories. Uh, this is the three-part series of all the problems I have had with uh, law at the U.S.-Canada border that we just wrapped up on Patreon last week. But you can hear all three parts right now by subscribing at patreon.com slash thisishell. John says, I don't know if I told you, but I worked for Amtrak as a train attendant for about 10 years. Let's just say that pot and booze were no strangers to those on those cross-country trips I used to take. Thank you, John, for confirming that, in fact, Amtrak was weed track. For many, many years, John adds your interview with Vincent Brown in January. It was incredibly interesting. So interesting that I went out and bought the book Tacky's Revolt, the story of an Atlantic slave war. Previously, I've read about the Haitian slave revolt and independence, but this book really puts everything into the greater depressing context. John's correct. Vincent's book on viewing and understanding slavery as a slave war that lasted for centuries and spanned continents, a truly global world war, is eye-opening and incredibly enlightening. John ends with, oh, and if you still are looking for a place to get your hair cut when this all ends, might I recommend Bionic Hair on Broadway. Looking forward to the next Office Hours, whenever the hell that might be. No, I know that you can't get your hair cut under the virus. And unfortunately, my girlfriend is threatening to cut my hair. It's not that she's bad at it. Hell, it will be a lot better than the last haircut I got. She was the one who had to fix what looked like a My Little Pony haircut, complete with an extra mane down the back of my head. The problem is she's not very fast about it because she is understandably apprehensive, which is good. So a haircut can take hours 
which means, John, that when this nightmare is over sometime around, I'm guessing, Labor Day 2021, yeah, we're only 17 months away from being able to go outside again. When we are finally having office hours at Carrie's Lounge after our work weeks have ended on some future Friday night, John, well, probably... Let's make that definitely need a haircut. If you want to contact us and share your thoughts on the show or send along guest or topic suggestions, please email me at chuckatthisishell.com or alex at alexatthisishell.com. Or you can direct message us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio or send us a message via our Facebook page. And if you do, we'll likely read your email on air or a message of any type, that is. Coming up on This Is Hell, we continue our series of reports from our correspondents past guests and contributors here on This Is Hell. This time we'll hear what's happening in Taiwan. During the Moment of Truth, Jeff Dorchin shares part three of The Good Doctor, the four-part fictional expose of a man who betrayed his calling in exchange for fame and fortune. And more of your answers to this week's question, Mel, as well as announcing this week's winner. And we'll be telling you what's happening on tomorrow's Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. Taiwan's success at fighting the coronavirus has been framed in misleading ways in the Western media. While its response to COVID-19 has been exceptional, global powers like China and the U.S. have faltered and in doing so need to project strength. And that may not bode well for the people of Taiwan or the people of anywhere, for that matter. Here to get us caught up on what is happening in Taiwan under the virus, journalist Brian Hugh is a freelance translator, a writer on social movements and youth culture in Asia, and founding editor at Taiwan-based New Bloom magazine, which you can find at newbloommag.net. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Brian. Thanks for having me. It's glad to be back. Uh, by the way, congratulations on your new portfolio website of all of your work. You can, <laughs> you can find all of Brian's work by going to newbloommag.net, but he also has his own site now, brianhue.info. So that's brianhioe.info, and you can follow him on Twitter, at brianhue. The first question that we've been asking uh, during these Thursday reports, Brian, to each of the people we've talked to in San Juan and Seoul and Sao Paulo and Budapest, it's always been, how are you? And and if I remember right, every one of them, every one of the people we've talked to so far has said, I think I had coronavirus, but I haven't been tested. I'm not too sure, but I had something in January or February. So, Brian, how are you feeling? Um, I'm actually doing all right. I don't think that's ever happened to me. I've felt mostly okay for through the past few months. And so I haven't been tested, but I have actually not felt sick the entire time. So what is access to testing in Taiwan if you wanted to get testing? They tell you not to go if you don't have symptoms. What's the, how, what's the process that you go through if you want to be tested in Taiwan? Um, that's right. And so right now, um, mass testing is not taking place, but there's the kind of consideration of whether to actually carry out mass testing. Uh, Taiwan has had successes fighting off COVID-19. There are 427 cases at present, uh, confirmed cases, and only six deaths. And so uh, the other thing is that actually there hasn't really been community spread of COVID-19. It doesn't seem to be spreading among the Taiwanese population. It's mostly people returning from abroad that are confirmed to have uh, caught it while abroad. And so right now, because of that, because of the view that community transmission is not widespread, there hasn't been mass testing. Um, there's a belief that this would actually create social pa panic, that uh, there could be a number of false positives and so forth. Um, and so it doesn't happen yet. But... Uh, 
in the future, if that does happen, it, Taiwan might switch to a kind of mass testing regime that similar to you've seen in other countries. Uh, right now, it's still focused on uh, tracing contacts and so forth, but just cases have been kept down so far, and so this has not happened yet. So, Brian, here in the States, the repeated refrain when it comes to Taiwan and COVID-19 in the U.S. media is the virus did not have as big of an outbreak there and few people lost their lives because of a mass surveillance system, the kind that the people of the United States would likely never allow. I heard that on CNN yesterday and that being in Southeast Asia, which has experienced SARS and MERS, they were more prepared for the pandemic, just like all the Southeast Asian countries were. First, has surveillance changed since the outbreak? And second, did surveillance in past pandemics protect Taiwan from COVID-19? So I think what's scary is that uh, states around the world are using COVID-19 as a way to expand surveillance power. And Taiwan is a democracy now. Uh, and some of its successes in fighting COVID-19 have been attributed to that. It is a democracy. But in the past, Taiwan was an authoritarian country that went through a period of democratization. Um, so with regards to the fact that anyone returning from abroad uh, is now subject to a 14-day quarantine, the government, for example, has mandated uh, everyone that is going through this quarantine to have an app installed on their phone that tracks their location. And if they leave their home and so forth, then it will alert the police. Um, this has not prevented some people from just leaving their phones at home and going out. Um, but people keep an eye on this kind of thing. And, and there are police visits to people under quarantine um, or visits by local uh, neighborhood bureau chiefs. It's kind of a local, uh, very local kind of government position for a neighborhood. Um, at the same time, there's also been the use of cell phone tracking to try to determine contacts. Uh, if confirmed cases have come into contact with people and to get down the information of who they came in contact with. Uh, there's use of the national uh, text messaging service, too, in order to warn people that they might have come in contact with someone that was confirmed to have COVID-19. Uh, for example, recently, there was a group of sailors uh, coming back from the Navy that were coming back to Taiwan that caught COVID-19 in some way. And there's 200,000 text messages. Uh, the uh, text messages were sent out to around 200,000 people that were determined to have possibly in the same location as these sailors. And so this has happened. Um, there are concerns that if the government does maintain surveillance after the pandemic has passed, that this could actually be infringing on uh, privacy, uh, freedoms, and so forth. And I think it's also worth remembering that, particularly in Taiwan, the former authoritarian party is actually still active uh, in, in Taiwanese politics. After democratization, it starts to run in elections and still around today. And so if they had access to this information, that could perhaps prove dangerous. When we were talking to Todd Williams in Budapest, he was uh, talking about how Prime Minister Viktor Orban has attained expanded powers through the parliament in order to have more of an authoritarian state that it, he already had. And there are concerns that those uh, powers are not going to disappear once the pandemic goes away. And besides, you know, Orban had already had a whole bunch of authoritarian power even going into the pandemic to begin with. So what do you think the likelihood is that Taiwan would keep these kind of surveillance processes in place? I think it's a question. I think that particularly uh, civil society is strong in Taiwan. Uh, social movements against authoritarianism were what led to democratization. And so a lot of these kind of actors, these social movement actors are still around. There's a strong history of protests in Taiwan. And so if I think it came to that, I think there would be protests and there would be backlash. Um, 
the uh, current administration, the Democratic Progressive Party, is a center-left party, uh, but it also is a party that came out of the Taiwanese democratization movement. And so it also does have to answer to these charges when there are accusations made against it that is behaving in an authoritarian manner no different than the KMT, the former authoritarian party that's still around in politics. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why I think the DPP, the Democratic Progressive Party, has refrained from declaring a state of emergency, because it knows that uh, it would come under fire for this. And it also ha knows that um, if it does kind of justify emergency powers in this way, it would receive a great deal of criticism. It would be accused of being authoritarian, and it has to answer this accusation. Um, that being said, the government has taken steps to intervene, particularly in private industry, uh, to raise production and manufacturing of needed medical supplies and so forth. And this is something that uh, is kind of an expansion of the state powers normally because of the fact that Taiwan is a capitalist free market country. Um, but I don't think it's it's gotten to that point yet. And I think that's that's a real danger, though, with the uh, other context that political leaders will declare a state of emergency for a power grab in order to expand powers and, and to to really uh, use this emergency for what it's worth in terms of just accruing more power to themselves. What is the state of the protest movement right now in Taiwan? So if something like that happened, how prepared are they to react? It's a good question. I think that it would take some uh, delayed reaction backlash. Uh, there'd be probably some time for that to happen, because right now there's not a lot of protests going on for different issues because of social distancing measures. Uh, people don't want to go. Uh, Taiwan is not under lockdown the way a lot of the world is at present. But even then, with uh, the restrictions or um, just warnings against having mass gatherings that are larger than, uh, you know, hundreds of people and that kind of thing. Um, and so that, that means that there's not a lot of protests at present. But I think that down the line, there would be anger against the government. It does overstep its bounds. And I think that this would be reflected either in elections and the result of elections or just actually a protest movement. Um, but I think actually the public is pretty happy right now with how the DPP is currently handling things. So the approval rating of the DPP and of uh, the people working in, for example, the Ministry of Health and Welfare is, is quite high. Um, on the other hand, I think that just considering the last set of elections that uh, there was a fear that the KMT would come back to power. The, the management of the of the uh, pandemic would be very different under a KMT administration. And having all this information in literally the former authoritarian party that's carrying political killings uh, just a few decades ago would be quite dangerous. And so I think that's also the biggest question, like what happens to this data now? Um, Taiwan has universal health care, for example, but there have always been concerns regarding the health database um, and privacy concerns. The fact that there's information is all centralized together in this health database that that could uh, if this data gets in the wrong hands, that could be quite dangerous. If the opposition party was in power right now, would have they had a reaction that was similar to China's or the United States? Um, it's a good question, because I think that actually, yes, um, there is issues with corruption in both the major parties in Taiwan, the DPP and the KMT. But the KMT, the former authoritarian party, historically has had larger issues of corruption. Uh, it used different clientelist networks in local areas as the way to control um, the, the political control of these areas to maintain that. Uh, for example, rewarding people, uh, giving them kipgaks in return for political loyalty. And so I think there's something particularly that you see that's quite bad right now in the U.S. with the Trump administration handing out contracts to these random, very small companies with uh, that don't actually have to do with anything regarding fighting disease or whatever, just because of, of connections, family connections, that kind of thing. And so I think that you would see these kind of issues if the KMT were in power um, on a much more uh, severe level than with the DPP, even though the DPP itself has been accused of corruption in the past as well. Um, I think the other thing is that actually uh, the political agenda of the KMT is that it's a pro-unification party. It, would, is, it is in support of unification with China. And as a result, it would have been reluctant to take any measures which would make China look bad. And so it would probably have been slow to close borders to China, uh, to take action against, uh, to take action actually even just monitoring people coming back from China um, and that kind of thing. And so 
I think that would have become an issue. That you saw something similar in Hong Kong because the current government in Hong Kong is uh, basically run by Beijing from afar. As a result, they were uh, originally very hesitant to take measures regarding COVID-19 because of the fact the fear that this would make China look bad because of association of China with the disease. You uh, are from New York City originally. Uh, when we were speaking with Mark Flurry in Seoul, South Korea, he had major concerns for the United States because he did not think that our society had the discipline in order to work together to fight the virus. He was talking to a friend of his who lives in mainland China about how when he goes into grocery stores at one point, this is a while ago, uh, you had to be disinfected and by when you went in and that you had to have a, a card and it was limited in how many times you could go outside and to where you could go. And he just thought to himself, Americans will never put up with this. Brian, do you think Americans would put up with even the kind of tracking and tracing that Taiwan is employing in order to fight COVID-19? I think that's one of the things, actually, that uh, Americans would actually have severe backlash against, for example, being put into quarantine for 14 days if they return from somewhere else. Um, and they would probably react against tracking and, and that kind of thing as well. Um, there are also other different regulations in effect, such as that if you uh, are taking the subway, you need to wear a medical mask, a surgical mask. Um, if you are taking a bus across the country, you also have to do the same thing. And so this is, they won't actually let you into the subway unless you, are, you have a medical mask. And I think that Americans probably would not sit well for that. Um, and that's, that's one of those things that a lot of these kind of small measures to uh, prevent the spread of the disease, I think that there would be backlash against that. People would view it as an imposition on their freedom. Um, in the beginning, too, I mean, uh, the government acted very quickly against COVID-19. It was very aware of this threat from very early on. It took early action. But in the beginning, I think that people maybe did not have a sense of the danger of this disease. And I think particularly that's what played out so catastrophically in the U.S. and the U.K. and Europe and other places that people did not take this seriously. They kept going out um, and they, they did not want to wear masks or, or do these kind of inconvenient things in order to prevent the spread of the disease. Because because of the incubation of the period of the disease, it takes time for uh, these kind of things to become much more well known. And I think that's that's really played out in a way that that worsened how it was in, in the U.S. I mean, just hearing all the stories from family and friends in New York is it's just horrific. And just the amount of deaths which occur daily in the United States is just so much on such a, a much larger level than in Taiwan that just it's very hard for me to imagine right now. So how how are people in Taiwan? How do they view, how do they react to the way that the United States has responded to COVID-19? Because and from our uh, report in Hungary and Budapest, they were kind of just laughing sadly at us. Uh, yeah, it's one of those things, actually. And I think that particularly um, Taiwan is a country that is a client state of the U.S. in the sense that the U.S. has militarily maintained, uh, historically maintained Taiwan as a right-wing dictatorship against China. Um, you know, the familiar pattern of popping up a right-wing dictator uh, for the sake of anti-communism. And that was the KMT and Chiang Kai-shek back in the day. Um, and so because of this kind of relation historically between the Taiwan and the U.S., uh, there's always been this kind of idealization of the U.S. You see this, I think, in a lot of former American uh, client states and colonies and that kind of thing, um, in which the U.S. Is, is idealized and viewed as the kind of uh, advanced or superior nation that's more powerful than this kind of third world nation. Uh, but that's kind of changed a lot, I think, under the Trump administration because of how inept it has been and actually how right wing it has been because the fact is that contemporary Taiwan is more progressive, I think. Uh, we've seen the victory of a progressive president now for uh, she won her re-election recently. Um, and so I think just watching what's going on in the U.S. is, is it's really it's been disillusioning for people or I, I perhaps hope it is uh, because of the fact that um, uh, just there's been this historical idealization of the U.S. And so the flaws, I think, of this kind of unfettered capitalism 
uh, are, I hope, becoming more clear to people that there's all this crony capitalism in the U.S. between uh, people that are part of the Trump administration and private companies and that they're not affected by uh, – they, they, they're getting access to tests and these kind of things and the regular people are not. Um, and, and I hope that this can be uh, impetus for change. Um, I mean it's usually it's, – it's one of those things. I mean it's, it's, it's horrifying, but yeah. You had a post at New Bloom, are Taiwan successes fighting COVID-19 due to democracy or state interventionism? Is the lesson that we are learning from East Asia not that a communist government is more or less prepared for a pandemic, not that a democratic government is more or less prepared for a pandemic, but is the lesson that state-run market economies are our future because it looks like disasters like the pandemic and whatever climate change brings are are our future. So are the kind of state-run market interventions that you see taking place in Taiwan in Vietnam, in South Korea. Do you think that that is our future as our challenges become worse with climate change? It's one of those things that's a, a good question, because I think that democracy does allow for more effective responses to uh, fighting disease, for example, because you can actually have open discussion and debate and so forth. Uh, for example, China did actually try to originally um, uh, kind of crack down on information being spread about the, the initial outbreak of COVID-19, uh, just to hope that this would go away if it was kept quiet and that kind of thing. And of course it did not. Um, and actually then one observes that the U.S., which I also do not think is actually a democracy uh, in its current state, um, also had the same response that the Trump administration initially did not want to have mass testing because of the fact that uh, this would look bad for elections. Keeping the numbers low was its priority rather than human lives. Um, so there's that. I do think actually being a democracy does allow for a more discussion, debate, and allow for circulation of information in a way to make disease outbreaks more uh, quickly detected. However, at the same time, I think that it's a little misleading just to kind of hold Taiwan up as an example of a democracy in juxtaposition to China and in juxtaposition to the U.S. Um, with China, this is, again, just juxtaposing a quote-unquote democracy to godless communist China or whatever. Um, with the U.S. then, or for Western countries looking at Taiwan, it's, uh, it's holding up Taiwan as kind of an idealized other a democracy able to fight off uh, COVID-19. Uh, but I think that a lot of it actually just goes back to the willingness of the government to intervene in private companies rather than allow private companies to kind of just try to make a profit off this, um, to bid on things and, and to patent uh, whatever, or just, you know, just allow uh, the kind of free market um, or the, the invisible hand of the free market to kind of figure out what supplies are needed. And this kind of central coordination, I think, was key, actually, in Taiwan and other countries, democratic or not, such as Vietnam is not a democratic country. Um, in, these, in these countries, their responses were more effective because of this willingness to intervene. And so that's the really scary thing now, that even after all this um, in the United States, the Trump administration has no interest in actually intervening in private industry. Private industry is actually, in some sense, making a killing off of this. And uh, this kind of disconnect or this unwillingness to actually uh, coordinate things on a central level between states and, uh, and, and to intervene in private industry, that's, that's ultimately just cost uh, so many lives and it will cost more lives. Does COVID-19 then reveal that China and the United States are a lot more similar than either one would like to admit? I think so, actually. And that's the scary thing. And so uh, basically, both are uh, not really democracies, though they claim to be. Both do actually claim to be. And I think they're run by uh, authoritarian, kleptocratic regimes in which there's a lot of, of uh, personal interest uh, in government. And that this has been illustrated very well in, in this kind of disease response. And I think you see politicians prioritizing their public image more than actually saving lives. And I think these parallels are, are quite striking. 
Um, and I think also, particularly now, both are inflaming rhetoric against each other uh, because of the fact that to distract from the failings of, of all these deaths in their home countries, targeting a foreign enemy is easier. And so you observe this parallel behavior again. Um, I mean, particularly Taiwan is actually standing to be caught up in between this because uh, China is ramping up military drills in the area, uh, to, I think, to distract from the COVID-19 crisis at home. And America is responding in turn with further military drills. And so I think this is one of those things that actually uh, COVID-19 has caused both to react in similar ways. It shows the similar failures of both sides, but also they've, uh, they, they react in a kind of aggressive way against each other that also has many, um, it's like watching two mirror images. Let's get to that, uh, uh, the military concerns, because you've written uh, several articles on COVID-19. And in one, you write how uh, increased American military activity in the region began as a response to increased Chinese military activity, though both sides' actions have had a mutually escalating effect. The American military is very likely hoping to also avoid coming off as weak in its interactions with the Chinese military, as well as to reassure Taiwan and other American allies in the region of American security commitments at a time in which American President Donald Trump has threatened to break off long-standing security relations. So if Trump is considering ending security relations with Taiwan, then why do a show of force? Um, it's one of those things, and I think that it's it's a, it's a good question, because I think particularly what Trump says and, and actually what the State Department or the U.S. military does is sometimes separate. Um, Trump just kind of says whatever. Um, but particularly under Donald Trump in the past few years, one has seen the much more open shift towards a directly extortionist um, kind of pattern of behavior towards uh, purported East Asian and Southeast Asian uh, allies, uh, places in which there are American bases. Uh, the Trump administration is demanding basically more money from these governments for maintaining those bases. Uh, there aren't such bases in Taiwan, but historically Taiwan has been in, connected to America. Um, America is its grantor of security in the region. Um, and so one observed this, but I think that particularly uh, the U.S. just doesn't want to appear weak right now. The, the COVID-19 crisis came at a time in which uh, the U.S.-China trade war was ongoing, and it threw a new wrinkle into this. And so I think that with China stepping up uh, military intimidation of Taiwan, America responds in turn, uh, again, just not coming out, want, not wanting to come off as weak. And this has to do with uh, both the kind of general, um, you know, just trying to reassure sometimes these uh, these allies, even if, quote unquote, even if you're also demanding more money of them, on the other hand. Um, but I think also it's uh, uh, an attempt to, again, just not come off as weak in negotiations. In the beginning of the COVID-19 crisis, because of the fact that the disease originated in China, China came off as much more weak. But then now we see that there are more deaths occurring in America than actually occurred in China. And also American carrier fleets, uh, because boats are actually a, a great environment for the disease to spread, um, have been kind of grounded or put into quarantine and so forth. And so America really does not want to come off as weak right now. And I think these are particularly dangerous times in general uh, for Taiwan and other small countries in the region or just the world at large. Do you think COVID-19 then will lead to the Trump administration dropping any idea of ending longstanding security relations with Taiwan? It's a good question. Um, I actually don't know because um, uh, I think that just this has been so erratic on the part of the Trump administration. The Trump, uh, particularly Trump, will say something and kind of demand more money from, let's say, South Korea or Japan, and then the military will try to reassure, or the diplomatic establishment of the U.S. will try to reassure and say, though it's not this this case. And so I think that one sees really mixed messaging right now from the U.S. Um, I think also there's a split between different government agencies and factionalism, and I think this kind of thing does go back uh, historically to. Uh, um, I mean, there, there are always different factions within the U.S. state, uh, but I think this is particularly extreme right now under the Trump administration. You write that, ironically, if America had managed to ward off COVID-19 from the beginning rather than disastrously mismanage its response to the virus, America would have been in a good position to come out ahead 
of China in the U.S. trade uh, China trade war, which seems so important to the Trump administration and President Trump. What does it say to you about President Trump or his administration that they did not see how they could take financial and trade advantage of the COVID-19 outbreaks in China? And if they had a thorough response here in the United States, they could have had a major advantage when it comes to trade relations with China. After all, these guys are supposed to be good businessmen, right? So what does it say to you about the Trump administration, about Trump, that they didn't say see that they could take financial advantage of this situation? I think it just illustrates how ineffective they are. I mean, they, uh, they're they not good at being technocrats because they're not technocrats, and they're just not very good capitalists either. <laughs> that's the thing that's kind of scary. And so one just sees this erratic behavior across the board. And I think particularly Taiwan and Hong Kong, the fact that, or other, other East Asian countries, just the fact is that despite the fact that how close they are to the origin of uh, the uh, virus, um, they have actually not as been affected as the U.S. And so I think that just points to the, that this was not inevitable. Um, but then, yeah, it just, it just shows how ineffective the Trump administration is and how inept its handling of basically anything is. And I think any of the measures that have been rolled out uh, to counter COVID-19 have also just suddenly been disastrous. And that's, that's the thing that's really scary right now, I think. Because, um, you know, it's actually, yeah. No, it's, go ahead. Uh, it's in- it's interesting to me because now there's the proposition by particularly right-wing American hawks to punish China in some way for being the origin of disease, which seems absurd to me because this is just a disease that originated, a virus that originated in China and just spread to the rest of the world. Um, and then there's the proposition to punish China, to use this as a justification for military aggression against China. And at the same time, then, you look at how America is doing with the disease and that so much of the uh, spread of the disease out of the world now is coming out of America. And so if you actually turn it the other way around, this proposition to punish China for spreading the disease could also be applied to America. And so that's, that's one of the f- funny ironies. But I think that, yeah, again, the, the parties of this administration are just pretty self-evident at this point. Back on March 24th, something that we mentioned here on this show but didn't get much press here in the States was the South China Morning Post reporting the U.S. Navy was targeting China with live-fire missile tests in the Philippine Sea last week, sending a message that it was up to the challenge of the People's Liberation Army's new advanced systems, military analysts said. So what do we miss in understanding what's happening in East Asia when stories like that are not getting reported here in the States? It's actually very puzzling to me because I think if one thinks about, uh, let's say, the market, uh, Asia constitutes such a large part of the global economy. And so, for example, I think one of the American government's interests, particularly in defending so-called allies, is because, for example, shipping routes, uh, so much international shipping routes pass through waters that are disputed with the Chinese government. And so that's the reason why the U.S. has an interest in defending this, uh, in defending these countries and their uh, naval territories and so forth is because of trade. Um, but just historically speaking, a lot of coverage of Asia has been quite lacking. And so these large events which influence global trade uh, have large effects on geopolitical tensions that affect the entire world, which somehow just are not reported on. I think that's a, that's a strange oversight. And I think that uh, uh, then what, what does have is these kind of much more conservative uh, media outlets that are, let's say, pro-business or uh, from like a state policymaker perspective that end up writing on these issues. And so I think that um, it's one of those things that there's, there needs to be space for more of this kind of coverage from a, a say, left or progressive perspective. Uh, but I think that just, again, like there's such insularity sometimes in terms of English language or Western news coverage. There's such focus on what goes on in uh, the U.S. or the U.K. and Europe and maybe a small set of countries outside of Western context that there's not a lot of focus on this. And so these are events which stand to sh- affect everybody, but there's somehow not a lot of not a lot of writing on this in English or uh, languages that are widely spoken internationally. And so that's the kind of the scary thing, actually, that What's... this happens in 
Yeah. What's the general reaction by people in Taiwan to these kind of power plays between the United States and China that seem to be completely out of Taiwan's control? How do they feel about this? Do they see it as a, an infringement, an encroachment upon their sovereignty? How do they, how do they feel about it? Is it like living under a Cold War? Um, maybe that's one way to put it. I think that particularly, again, there's still idealization of the U.S. And so there is this kind of tendency to celebrate whenever the U.S. kind of has one up China in some way. Um, and that's maybe an issue historically. And I think particularly for building ties of, let's say, transnational solidarity, that's an issue. Um, but I think also then being a small country caught between these two superpowers in such a direct way uh, as a, in, at a place that's a potential flashpoint for a global conflict kind of causes a sense of inevitability about just whatever happens with these kind of big countries and their decisions and what they decide to do. And just people have to live with it and cope to whatever new reality. And I think that for better or worse, um, particularly just with the U.S. being behaving so erratically under the Trump administration, this will push countries in the region, including Taiwan, towards greater forms of self-reliance, um, because you can't count on just an unreliable uh, security guarantor such as the U.S., which is just behaving in such an extreme manner uh, domestically, internationally, and so forth. And so I think this will push countries uh, in the region towards self-reliance. I don't know if that will mean actually smaller countries in the region caught between the U.S. and China will try to align against, uh, align with each other uh, against these kind of you know big threats, uh, these two superpowers. Um, but that, that remains to be seen. You write that on April 11th, China's first aircraft carrier, the Liao Ning, sorry, sailed through the <laughs> Taiwan Strait as part of a carrier group escorted by two destroyers, two frigates, and a supply ship. It is thought that China sending its first aircraft carrier through the Taiwan Strait may have been to draw attention to the fact that American aircraft carriers in the region are under quarantine. Was the Chinese aircraft carrier, was the Chinese Navy, were they simply trolling the U.S. Navy? I think they might have been, because actually I think that's one of the things about, uh, particularly the military, is that a lot ends up being trolling. A lot of these kind of flybys or uh, when you send a ship through the Taiwan Straits or whatever, and then the other side responds by doing the same thing, but just kind of escalating it, like adding more planes or more ships or whatever. It's just kind of this crazy game of, of trolling and ups, one-upsmanship and so forth. And so I think I think that's what it is, actually. Sending the uh, aircraft carrier, the first aircraft carrier uh, through the Taiwan Straits is actually, it is a form of trolling. I mean, it's, it's also just kind of ridiculous when one thinks about it, because, yeah, the U.S., a lot of its air, aircraft carriers, a few of them are under quarantine now, and the government tried to do nothing about it and tried to punish military officials that tried to raise alarm about it. And then China has is also trying to build up its naval force. It's one its first aircraft carrier, the Liaoning, used to be a casino uh, owned by the Soviet Union, uh, the floating casino that was turned into an aircraft carrier. So I think all this points to, I think, some of the ridiculous aspects of uh, kind of militarism and just aggression and stirring off between these large and powerful nations. It sounds so ridiculous that I'm laughing over here. You also write that Taiwan's uh, Tsai administration, that's the administration of Tsai Ing-wen, the president, has been quick to criticize the Chinese government for spending resources on militarily intimidating Taiwan, what it should have instead been focusing efforts on fighting the COVID-19 pandemic. Yet it is impossible, or no, yet it is probable that military drills in February were scheduled ahead of time because before the full scale of COVID-19 pandemic was clear and were meant as a military show of force in the wake of Tsai's presidential election victory in January. It proves more significant to note that the Chinese government has continued heightened military activity into March and April. What does this say to you about China's dislike for the government of President Tsai Ing-wen? Why even during COVID-19 do they want to display their displeasure with her? It's one of those things. I think it's it's quite puzzling because, uh, yeah, I think that beginning when China began to ramp, ramp up military drills, it had much more to do with just uh, displeasure at Taiwan having another uh, democratic election in which a party that leans towards political independence was reelected. 
Um, but then just continuing this, I think it, it's, uh, it plays maybe in a few different roles. Uh, for example, it's one way to distract from domestic discontent by focusing uh, anger on Taiwan. Um, one has seen actually, for example, a uh, ramping up of Chinese nationalism towards Taiwan recently um, because of COVID-19, because of the fact that there are these uh, international reports celebrating Taiwan as having fought it off in a way that China hasn't. Uh, one has seen a lot of kind of uh, a sharp increase in nationalist attacks online, for example, internet harassment, uh, trolling, um, uh, and so forth, and also disinformation uh, spread by the Chinese government, or even just nationalist netizens directed at Taiwan. Uh, things are intended to cause social panic or uh, uh, create fears that the government, that the Tsai administration is hiding uh, the full scale of the outbreak and so forth. And so that's that's one that's another reason I think just distracting from domestic discontent or as a vent for domestic discontent. Um, but I think also just that's that's where the government's priorities are always at. Um, I think the government has always been. I mean, the Chinese government has was pretty clear in its initial response that it's more focused on maintaining legitimacy, political legitimacy. Uh, it was afraid of coming off weak more than it was it was concerned with actually saving Chinese lives. And so I think this is another example in point. One last question for you, Brian. We've been speaking with journalist Brian Hugh. He is a freelance translator, a writer on social movements and youth culture in Asia, and founding editor of Taiwan-based New Bloom magazine, which you can find at newbloommag.net. You can follow Brian on Twitter at Brian Hugh. That's H-I-O-E. And you can find all of Brian's writing at brianhugh.info. This is Brian's fourth appearance on This Is Hell, dating back to 2015. And you can find all of our conversations with Brian at our website, thisishell.com. Final question, as always, is the question from hell. The question from <laughs> hell for you is, this is the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. Can COVID-19 start World War III? That's the scary thing. I think it's, uh, it's quite possible. I think that uh, we're living through conditions which resemble maybe 100 years ago, and uh, exactly 100 years, and those, that was a world war in the time of disease. And so I think that's possible. At the very least, we will see a number of, of right-wing regimes take power using this as justification. And so we live in uh, grim times, I think. On that happy note, as always, Brian, it's great to hear from you. We're going to be bugging you in the near future because on May 20th, there's going to be a decision made and a display of force to be shown or display to be shown of what is the future of China. So we'll be getting back in contact with you shortly. Thank you so much for being back on our show, Brian. Thanks for having me. Take care. Wow. Did something just go down my throat wrong? What the hell was that? I hope it was coffee. Good Lord. Oh, that was horrible. Wow. Right at the end there. Ask somebody about COVID, and all of a sudden, I feel like I have it. You want some? Uh, you want some Coke Zero? <laughs> no, I do not. No, <laughs> keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996. This is hell, and if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to tomorrow's Patreon podcast at Patreon.com/slash This Is Hell. We'll tell you what's happening on tomorrow's Patreon podcast exclusively for listeners who subscribe in a moment, as well as have a moment of truth. And we'll remind you of this week's Hangover Cure. Thank everyone who is on this week's show and share with you what's happening on the show next week. During the Moment of Truth, Jeff Dorchin shares part three of The Good Doctor, the four-part fictional expose of a man who betrayed his calling in exchange for fame and fortune. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live stream host, 
Chuck Mertz producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. This week's question from L is, what should Bernie Sanders do with all that money people gave him? What should Bernie do with all that money? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from L wins 10 This Is Hell subvertising stickers so you too can subvert outdoor advertising with the words, This Is Hell. You can leave your answer to this week's question from L on our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. Alex, do you have more of our listeners' answers to this week's question from L? Oh, yeah. What should Bernie do with all the money people gave him? Steve C. says, give it back. He has the information for every contribution, and we need it more than he does. And isn't he the socialist? XI says, do that scene from DuckTales. I think it's when you dive into the pool of money. Uh, Chris C. says, pimp his ride. Jim P. says, start a vegan fast food chain that is owned by its employees. Wait, who said pimp his ride? Uh, Chris C. (laughs) Okay. Madeline E. says, buy a ticket to Jeffrey Epstein's Island. (laughs) Scott S. says... What we should be doing with our Corona blood money, build some guillotines and befriend your local crows so they can join our side in the post-quarantine riot. Chris H. says, refund. John M. says, pay hackers to get an info dump of the DNC's emails. If there's any leftover, target the Chinese government's COVID files. (laughs) Joshua L. says, time to finally open up that Subway franchise him and Jane have always dreamed about doing. (laughs) That's pretty good. MGB said, building some of these bad boys. And you can guess what those bad boys are, an image of... (laughs) Guillotines. <laughs> Steve S says, fund a people's party instead of his good friend's party. What should people do? What should Bernie do with all that money people gave him? Jeremy T said, are there any actual Sanders supporters asking for their contribution back or just moderate Dems and right wingers looking for a way to kneecap Sanders in the movement he started? Yeah. Six of one and a half a dozen of the other. Benjamin C posted a gif of um, the Joker from that Batman movie uh-huh. bur- burning something. I don't know what it is. Money, maybe. Mm. That's pretty cool, actually, I guess. Uh, Nikki says, collaborate with many people to create a truly participatory and democratic government in waiting, run problem-solving simulations, and share the results open source with the whole world. And Braden S. says, get middle-tier health insurance for six months. (laughs) There's a bunch more, so I'll wait out till after Jeffy. On Patreon this week, immediately after Barack Obama was elected and prior to him being inaugurated, his supporters were all debating whether their anti-war activism, which had blossomed under the George W. Bush administration, should continue their protests. Many centrist Democrats said no because if protests continued, they worried that Obama would last only one term and the left will have destroyed any chance at defeating the worst aspects of Republicans on the farthest of right wings. So we will be sharing our November 29, 2008 interview with Frances Fox Piven, who is on the faculty of the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. She is the author of the 2006 classic, Challenging Authority, How Ordinary People Change America. Frances was on This Is Hell to talk about an article she had just posted at the nation's website, Obama needs a protest movement. And I actually stumbled across an article about her in a New York Times article from 2019. And the headline was something like, will this 86-year-old activist ruin the chances for the Democratic Party in 2020? I don't know. I got to go look into that article. I just stumbled across it right before the show. So we had Francis on to talk to her about her then just posted uh, article at the nation's website, Obama needs a protest movement. And Francis was correct. Obama did need a protest movement, but the protest movement went away when Obama took office, and we got eight years of even more wars than W started, more drone strikes than W ever launched, more fossil fuels being burned every year, and inequality increasing. So, yeah, Obama needed a protest movement, and if Biden gets elected, and I doubt he will, 
Hell, I have doubts there will be an election this year. But if Biden wins, he will need a protest movement, too. Unfortunately, a protest movement wasn't grown under Trump like it did under W, which is just freaking weird. And my monologue will will be getting caught up on what's happening up at the lake in the small town newspaper of which I received a gift subscription and how they're dealing with the global pandemic. And not surprisingly, they're not doing very well and they are incredibly angry. But you can only hear that if you subscribe to Completely Listener Supported. This is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. You can also show your support for This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Coming up during the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin shares part three of The Good Doctor, his four-part fictional expose. We'll also read the rest of your answers to this week's question from Hell. Announce our favorite and the winner of this week's prize. We'll find out from Alex, who's on next week's shows. Keep in mind, a lot of the questions I asked this week were written while it was really, really high. This is hell. My guess is you already have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do. The good doctor third dose welcome to the moment of truth the thirst that is the drink last we left the rising star dr dave he had just discovered an admirable and it would turn out valuable quality in his on-air partner howard stern imitation mel canola what it was was showmanship mel was a great performer a natural talent Dr. Dave felt a warmth for the talent of his friend and wanted to share in it. Mel began to draw Dave deeper into a comically jaded mindset with a little game in which the caller would be put on hold and Mel would speculate on what had happened in the caller's childhood to put them on the road to disaster. Dave would discuss Mel's speculations, come up with his own scenario, and they would bet on whose was closer to the truth. Then they'd go back to the caller and elicit the backstory to settle the wager. It would go something like this. All right, honey, we're, we're going to put you on hold for a second. Click. Okay, let's make a little wager here. I'm going to say father took off when she was, say, five years old. Mother was an alcoholic. No, no, mother had an alcoholic boyfriend. Boyfriend molested the daughter. I think the father molested the daughter. Same scenario, but the father was alcoholic and abusive. Abusive physically or sexually? Both. Why? I'm, I'm just curious. It's very common with lesbians, or she's 16. She doesn't know if she's a lesbian or not, really, at that age. But it's very common that survivors of incest abuse start to experiment with being lesbian. The contrast between the crudeness of Mel and the compassion of Dave grew less and less discernible as Dave's discourse sank to Mel's level. In response, Mel seemed to feel the need to up the crudeness. I'm going to say drunk father, abusive mom, mom neglected her, dad was sexual around her but didn't touch her, just let his Johnson hang out, walk around the house, maybe even spanked it in front of her. She was raped by a much older boyfriend. Raped or seduced, although it, it amounts to the same thing. I think there's something anal there. Anal, what do you mean? Like a suppository or a broomstick? I don't know. Something anal. I, I can't put my finger on it. Good. Don't. Don't put your finger on the anal thing. 
A pattern in Dr. Dave's diagnoses was that bisexuals weren't bisexual, but rather confused. And teens below the age of, say, 18, who considered themselves homosexual, couldn't possibly know what their sexuality was yet. They were still experimenting at best. Interestingly, the difficulty of ascertaining one's sexual identity before the age of 18 never arose when the callers described themselves as heterosexual. Adam and Drew, I mean <clears throat> Mel and Dave, found themselves confronting the same problems night after night. Young girls who needed the validation of older men and got it by having sex with them. Young men wanting to pressure young girls into having sex with them. Young people exacerbating the stress of adolescence with drug use and, more generally, screwed up people who got that way by being misinformed, weak, fearful, and lazy. Each caller was a unique individual, of course. In an ordinary practice, where he would have been treating young people with such problems, Dr. Andy David Pictus, MD, would never have mocked his patients publicly. But Mel, no physician, neither ethics nor bedside manner, any concern of his, began to treat the callers as if they were always the same annoying person, doing the same dumb thing again and again. His comments, sometimes during the calls and sometimes after, grew increasingly abusive. Where do they come from, Dave? Our callers. How do they live? They, they seem too dumb to live. Well, they muddle through on luck, I guess. Dave was still clinging to the last shred of his role as the voice of reason. But it wasn't long before his responses to Mel's suggestions that their callers were deserving of a good dose of ridicule along with advice sounded more sympathetic with Mel's plight than theirs. All right, John, you're, you're not going to drop out of school and you're going to quit sniffing glue and you're going to get an HIV test and not have any more unprotected sex, right? Huh? Yeah, well, my girlfriend won't have sex with me if I wear a condom. No, John, listen, you are not going to have sex without a condom anymore, okay? You're going to get an HIV test. Well, yeah, yeah, but no buts, John. Promise me you're not going to have sex without a condom. John, you there? Yeah. Do you understand? Promise me, John. Well, 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 yeah. No more huffing. No more huffing, okay? Uh, but Dave's girlfriend won't have sex with him if they don't huff. Okay, bye, John. Click. What a-hole would let his daughter within 100 yards of that retard, Dave? There are a lot of a-holes out there. That idiot, he's not going to, he didn't hear a single word. He's an idiot. He doesn't have the motivation. Some people are so dumb, they need to hit rock bottom. <laughs> Although, right, because huffing in mom's basement while screwing your junkie girlfriend without a condom isn't, no, right, exactly. That's not rock bottom enough. That's not far enough down. Still, Dave didn't have the hostility in his diction that Mel had. He didn't fly off the handle and refer to all Muslims as Habib or lambast anyone who opined that the Canadian health care system provided decent health care. But he did sit by and buy into each argument without actually engaging in the polemical rhetoric, but neither did he ever contradict it. When we return with the fourth and final part of this fictional saga, We'll find out how much farther Dr. Dave is willing to go to continue to live the lifestyle of the rich and famous. Join me for part four of The Good Doctor. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. 
I've been very much enjoying this four-part series, Jeffy, and I have to tell you that your uh, reproduction, your reenactment of what that radio show and TV show was like was annoyingly spot on. It was it was, gr- oh, I, it was grating in the same research. it was grating in the same way that that show was. Good to know. <laughs> hey, remind me again how Rod Stewart uh, started the Armenian genocide. <laughs> you know full well how Rod Stewart started the Armenian I, genocide. You know, I went to an Ar- Armenian gift shop and they had signs all <laughs> over about the Armenian genocide, but I didn't see a single sign about Rod Stewart. <laughs> they weren't playing Young Turks in the store the, the whole time. <laughs> they, they, they were. Maybe that's what that was. It was like, all the young turn. <laughs> but it, it was in my Armenian. I didn't understand it. All right, Jeffy. What? Say beautiful. Okay. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell. Alex, I got to tell you something really weird. Yesterday I was in the uh, liquor store acro- across the street, and it is a uh, an Indian-owned... Uh, liquor store and they're watching Indian TV whatever dialect or language that they speak and everything was in that dialect except for a few words so it's going on and on and on and all of a sudden I just hear the word body language and then I hear all this Indian Indian language again and then all of a sudden in English I hear consciousness then again all Indian dialect all Indian dialect and then the next word I hear that's in English is relationship isn't that weird I just thought that was so bizarre that you would have those words being was, in was on the screen it was like a chat show yeah and it, it wasn't that weird it's just like I always love when to find when what words show up in other languages because that dialect or language may not have a word for it you know it's, it's just weird I just thought it was weird anyway this week's question from Al is what should Bernie Sanders do with all that money people gave him what should Bernie Sanders do with all that money people gave him the person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins 10 this is hell advertising stickers so you too can subvert outdoor advertising with the words this is hell as we're all living in hell right now what better time to remind others that yes this is hell you got like eight seconds to leave your answer to this week's question from Al at our Facebook page tweet it to us or email it to us Alex do you have the rest of this week's answers to the question from Al yeah here we go what should people what should Bernie sorry what should Bernie do with all that money people gave him? Eric R. says, timeshare condo in Boca Raton. <laughs> Fabio L. says, buy all the effing oil. All of it. <laughs> That's uh, good. Nam G says, lock her up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, via email, a bunch of them. Um, perhaps buy a few acres in a quiet rural town, say a little place like Lincoln, Montana. Perhaps build a small cabin, buy a hooded sweatshirt and a pair of stylish <laughs> new sunglasses. Perhaps pick up a new creative hobby. That was Adeline W. <laughs> uh, then via email, Philip C. says we should uh, he should return it to his supporters. He should then be held personally accountable for every bad spending decision made by those supporters. That sounds democratic. Mm-hmm. Uh, via email, also, uh, uh, Wrangler Steve sent us a picture that he drew titled uh, Burning Bernie's Money in Hell. Via Instagram, our friend EatFarts69 said Bernie can finally achieve a dream he's held so dear since the days of living in that dirt floor shack. He can finally get those butt implants he wanted all those years. If he got butt, that actually would rule. Uh, <laughs> Wally R says, blow up his TV, throw away his paper, go to the country and build a, and build a home, plant a little garden, eat a lot of peaches, and try to find Jesus on his own. Aaron B says, he's got my credit card number, phone number, email, and home address. I definitely could use a refund. <laughs> Trevor H. says, this is in a theme, hookers and blow. 
This is the other way around from the other person who said cocaine first. I'm not sure what the order is you're supposed to do on that one. I'm pretty sure I know the order. Dennis H. says, put it in a large pile, dump gasoline all over it, and burn it. What should Bernie do with all that money people gave him? Just a couple more. John M. says, grow up. Whatever money was donated or donations and was put to good use or still is, stopping babies, blaming Bernie for the loss, and now getting paranoid something happened to your money. I've never seen such immature... <laughs> wait, Does this uh, go on? Uh, it's a way to counter uh, being accused of immature is snoring when they're Wow. Uh, Fritz K says, excellent question. Thank you. <laughs> Andre J says, one big mask to cover the entire lower 48. Damn, that's a good idea. We just need one really big mask to share. Uh, Jacob says, join Patreon to sponsor America's Real Heroes, the podcasters. Adam K says, invest it in oil futures. There's nowhere to go but up. And finally, Steve Smith says, party. My answer to this week's question from hell is, well, the question is, what should Bernie Sanders do with all that money contributors donated to his campaign? What should Bernie do with all that money? Burn it so the Democratic Party won't get their dirty hands on it. Either that or give it to the poor. Yeah, give it to the poor. Probably better for the environment anyway. That makes this week's winner, uh, let's see, Adeline's suggestion of him becoming essentially the Unabomber was good. Fabio, Fabio saying, buying all the oil, I like that. Ratif? saying uh, throw one last rager let's see Gail N. Jill Stein's 2020 recount project ice cream pimp is ride anything really stick out to you there Alex uh, my favorite was uh, Chris S. saying run for president <laughs> uh, but also the rager and then uh, Adeline's uh, Unibomber thing was really good too Let's go with Ratif's throwing a rager. Let's go with that one because that was a really great answer. I really enjoyed that a lot. Ratif, all you have to do is send us a message via Facebook, facebook.com slash thisishellradio with your mailing address, and we will get you your subvertising stickers. Alex, who's on the show next week starting with Monday, live streaming show at thisishell.com at 10 a.m. Chicago time. I got a lot of queries out, and I have no one has written me back. Everyone's working on their sourdough bread or something. I uh, should have something up soon, though. What about Tuesday? Uh, no, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Still waiting to hear Nothing back on from anything. Ev- I, no, still waiting to hear back from everybody. All right. So thanks to this week's guest, ed- writer and editor Cindy Milstein. Milstein? Milstein. Is author of, what did I all of a sudden stumble on it? Is author of Decoding, or Deciding for Ourselves, The Promise of Direct Democracy. It's an amazing article with a whole bunch of essays by people who are participating in sustainable direct democracy right now. The alternative is already out there. And Cindy has a collection of essays by those people who are participating in the future. To find out more about Cindy and read more of her writing, visit cbmilstein.wordpress.com. Follow Cindy on Twitter, at Cindy Milson. Iranian, well, we also want to thank Iranian Studies and Comparative Literature scholar Hamid Dabashi, author of The Emperor is Naked on the Inevitable Demise of the Nation State. Find out more about Hamid at HamidDabashi.com. And finally, thanks to today's guest journalist, Brian Hugh, is a writer on social movements and youth culture in Asia and founding editor at Taiwan-based New Bloom magazine. You can follow Brian on Twitter at Brian Hugh, H-I-O-E, and you can Find all of his writing at New Bloom Magazine at newbloom.net. This week's Hangover Cure is Scrapple, the stewed bits of meat that butchers couldn't use in other products, mixed with cornmeal and spices and then formed into a loaf. Once fried, the salty and fatty Scrapple is part of the classic Philadelphia breakfast with eggs and home fries. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon now that we shared with you the three-part series on my problems with the law at the U.S. border, U.S.-Canada border. 
and how that law stupidly criminalizes many lug, many drugs, making them illegal. We'll have an update on what's happening in small town USA and our 2008 talk with Francis Fox Piven on why Obama desperately needed a protest movement. I'll see all of you sometime in the future at This Is Hell Office Hours that we will have again someday in the future on a Friday night when this nightmare is over. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. As always, we cannot do this show without Alex, without Jeff, without Ronaldo, without Theron, and without Richard. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.